Lynn Hiles Ministries presents Dr. Lynn Hiles That You Might Have Life. And here's your host, Dr. Lynn Hiles. Thank you for joining us again this week on the program. And I trust that you have uh, set your DVR or you are watching on a regular basis because we like to teach series on the program. And what we're doing right now, we started last week to introduce a series on the book of Romans. And I'm going to talk about that again this week a little bit and just kind of give you an overview of the book of Romans. And then we're going to dig into this book and we are going to study it for however long it takes over the next several weeks. I think the book of Romans is probably one of the most important uh, uh, treaties that Paul wrote because what it does is it describes the gospel and what not only did Jesus do historically. A lot of people can look back at an Easter story, for instance, and we can delve into what we saw historically on the cross and what you could visibly see. But Paul goes into the legal and the vital, and he goes into what his death, burial, and resurrection truly meant and what it really was about. And he begins to really bring the gospel and an introduction to the new covenant and begins to transition the thinking of this first century group in Romans that were made up not primarily of Jewish people. They were included, but they were the primary audience in Rome was Gentiles. And all of a sudden, this expansion to the mystery, understanding the mystery of God, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, which if you look at that in the book of Colossians, was that God would not only be the God of the Jew, but of the Gentiles also. And that because Jesus was the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham that in your seed all the nations, plural, of the earth would be blessed, it is that that starts to unfold before us. This is kind of an ongoing reality of, I think this was Paul's third, I believe it is Paul's third missionary journey that he, (coughs) excuse me, he is coming to them at the end of his third missionary journey. So there, God has sent him as an apostle to the Gentiles, while Peter was an apostle to the circumcision, Paul was an apostle to the uncircumcision or to the Gentiles. And the church at Jerusalem, uh, several years prior to this, had just come through an understanding that God was including Gentiles because when Peter went and preached to the house of Cornelius and the Holy Spirit began to fall upon them, they had to navigate the waters of how do we blend the Jewish church with the Gentile church, because one of the things that they had to discuss was the eating of meat. And he said, if meat offends my brother, then you shouldn't eat meat because of their weak conscience. The reason for that was because you had Jewish believers and Gentile believers coming together in a place of worship for the first time, included in the same covenant of promise. And now you have Gentiles who did not understand the kosher laws of the Mosaic system of the Old Covenant, nor did they understand the concepts even of circumcision. So even the big first Jerusalem council in Acts 14 or 15, I believe it is, where they discussed, should these Gentiles be circumcised? It's where they decided, wait a minute, listen, we, we, we can't put any burden on these folks, uh, you know, that we couldn't carry ourselves. So that's where they decided that the Gentiles didn't need to be circumcised, circumcised that it was by faith 
and by faith alone. And so Paul was writing then to the uh, to the to the uh, especially the Gentiles were predominant in the church at Rome, but it's including both in this great treatise that Paul wrote writes. And what he begins to declare, especially in Romans one, is that verse sixteen and seventeen. Paul says this. He said, "For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation." In other words, the gospel is the power of God to salvation to the Jew first and also to the Gentile and to those who would believe and appropriate by faith this incredible gift of righteousness. He goes on to say, because in the gospel is revealed the righteousness of God. So the preaching of the gospel is the preaching of, and and you'll see this throughout the entire book of Romans, is, is a declaration of what his death, his burial, and His resurrection actually accomplished for the believer. I think sometimes we, we, we don't really realize the power of understanding the gospel, because when you don't understand the gospel, it's hard to believe. We've complicated it. In other words, we, you know, as I sit here and think about why Paul would say, I'm not, I, I'm not afraid, you know, I, I, you know, to preach the gospel. You know, I, I'm not afraid to preach the gospel. Uh, uh, let me, uh, he said, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Let me tell you that th- the reason he would say such a thing is, you know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel either. But if you would have set me in a first century context where you have a bunch of Jewish folks who are still fighting and persecuting, and a great deal of the persecution that's coming to Paul and his followers is not necessarily coming from just the Romans. It's coming from the Jewish synagogues and the leaders and the teachers and the Pharisees of the law who believe that he's leading something that's diametrically opposed to what they're teaching. As a matter of fact, Paul himself was knocked to the ground on the road to Damascus and got a revelation of Jesus while he had letters to go persecute them who were of the way because he thought they were in opposition to what their Jewish customs were. And in fact, the gospel was about to change everything. It was about to change their culture. It was about to change their covenant. God was bringing a change of covenant because He was showing them that the death, burial, and resurrection was the ultimate sacrifice and the conclusion of the old covenant. Now God is leading them out of this bondage of being servants into being sons. And you see that especially in Romans chapter 8 when he starts talking about that the whole creation is groaning for the manifestation of the sons of God. It's not just servants, but sons. And so when Paul was saying, I'm not ashamed, what he's saying is, I had to really be bold to preach something that seemed to be diametrically opposed to this performance-based uh, legalism that said, if you do this and do that, and don't do that, don't wear this, don't wear that, don't eat this, don't eat that, don't touch this, don't handle that. If you got all of that right, then and only then could you be declared righteous. But what the gospel declares is that through the death of Jesus and His burial and His resurrection, God has declared righteous and right with Him everyone, both Jew and Gentile, 
could receive this free gift of righteousness that God had made this, them acceptable on the basis of this sacrifice. That's the objective side of the gospel, and that's the power of the message of grace. And what happens is, is when you hear that message, it should ignite faith in you that says, if that's true, and I believe into righteousness, then I'm going to begin to act like what I believe. If I believe I'm righteous, I'm going to act like I'm righteous. But what it is, is that simply the gospel is declaring is that you are not working to get this. You've already got it as a free gift, and now you work out of salvation and not for salvation. It becomes works of righteousness and not works for righteousness. Big difference. And so the gospel begins to declare what Jesus did in His redemptive work and, 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 and that righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as is written, the just will live by faith. That's Romans 1 verse 16 and 17. And so uh, you know that's the righteousness of God is revealed in that. And you, you, you will go on and see how that affects the believer and the secondary part of it is we see the provision through the reconciliatory work of Jesus in Romans 5, and the outworking of that in Romans chapter 6, and then the dilemma of chapter 7 of being disconnected from the law, but yet coming into Romans 8, where there is therefore no, no condemnation of them that are in Christ Jesus, and he begins to talk about a glorious liberty. And that glorious liberty that was coming not only to the creation, but to them who were also waiting for the adoption. The adoption is also seen in Galatians chapter 3 and 4, that when we were under the law, we were servants, but now we have received the adoption of sons, so that we're placed into this new covenant, because the promise that God made to the seed of Abraham was not to seeds as of many, but to one seed, and thy seed, which is Christ. And if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. And what he begins to tell you is that since you are in Christ, and since you are a part of that seed, and since you have the righteousness that comes by faith, now you don't have to wait for an inheritance. That inheritance is walking in relationship with God as your Father, in this new covenant where there is no condemnation and where He accepts you in the Beloved and He fills you, first of all, with supply. And then there's an outworking of what He put within you of that salvation. The old covenant was full of demand without any supply. And so it was full of works, labor, labor, and works. And so the whole first part, uh, first couple chapters, and again, I encourage you that when you sit down to read the book of Romans, and we're going to read it a lot from the Message Bible because it really takes and brings some of the, the clarity to it. But I, I really encourage you that when you sit down to read the book of Romans, that you read it in, read it in its entirety in one whole setting. I have it actually in audio on my uh, on my iPhone, and I stream it to my uh, hearing, and I'll read the whole book of Romans in one setting, because if you don't, you kind of miss the point of what's happening. I think the biggest tragedy is when people read Romans 1 and 2, and partly into 3, and stop there, because then they will start to pull out certain sins, and especially what they think are the big sins, and preach against you know, a certain kinds of lifestyle. We'll get into that. We'll talk about what these things are as we get down through here. 
And I'm not suggesting it's right to live any old lifestyle. But what I am telling you is that if you read Romans 1 and 2 and you stop there, you're going to feel condemned, you're going to feel guilty, and you're going to walk away saying, there's no hope for me. Because that's really the purpose of the law is what Romans 1 and 2 does. And as he comes into chapter 3, he tells them he indicts both Jew and Gentile, insiders, outsiders, idolaters, heathens. He indicts everything and everybody. And he says, those of you that didn't have the law, you're indicted because you violated what you knew to be true in conscience. And the, the gospel was preached in all uh, through all different forms, including through the things that were created so that the world are without excuse. So he brings them in Romans chapter 1 and 2 to the end of themselves and says, you're without excuse. And here's the end of the law. Here's the end of this whole indictment is that there is none righteous, no, not even one. And so then he tells them as he goes on down through this that uh, uh, their hope then is in what Jesus did, that the righteousness apart from the law could be received by faith in those who would, as the Message Bible says, grasp with both hands this wildly extravagant grace gift. The gospel is almost too good to be true but it is. I'm telling you, this stuff has transformed my life. And then even in this climate of freedom and understanding and knowing that, is that through all of that, my life has had more true transformation than anything else. Because what you find later on in the book is you find out that the beginning of it is the indictment. The second part is the provision for the problem which is a righteousness that is accessed by faith in what Jesus has done. And then you start to see it shift, and it talks about once you believe that, there's a certain lifestyle that begins to flow out of the fact that you don't have to feel alienated from God. Even when you make a mistake, you can come in and climb up on His lap and say, man, I messed up, Papa, and I need your help. You know, I heard somebody say back some time ago, People say, well, you know, you guys, what the problem is, is this, you know, they like to, you know, like to slander things that they don't know anything about. And they say, the message, the problem is this message of cheap grace or hyper grace or, and I know there's some pollution in any message that's out there. But I heard somebody say one time, the problem is not with cheap grace. The problem is we've preached cheap law. And when I first heard that, I thought, man, that's powerful. And this, 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 this guy that I heard say that, actually it was Tulian, uh, Billy Graham's grandson. I don't know how to pronounce his last name just exactly right, but he was the one that made that statement. And when he said that, it really rung a bell with me. He said, because what happens is, is we preach the law cheap. And that's what the scribes and Pharisees did. They made it watered down so much till it was almost manageable, and they could put on their broad phylacteries and long prayers for pretense and their holy garb and do all their diver's washings and all of their rituals that made them look holy. But inside, the Bible said they were full of dead men's bones. But the law was, desi was, was designed to point out man's, man's problem and to diagnose it. But the law could not provide a provision for redemption from it. But the gospel of grace 
is the provision of the redemption. Once you have realized that all of the world becomes guilty before God, and as Galatians 3 says, and every mouth is stopped and all the world becomes guilty. It's at that point that you realize, I need a Savior. I can remember growing up in a lot of classical Pentecost, and I, I'm still Pentecostal in my roots, and I thank God for what I did. I don't mean to be disrespectful to anybody that preached some of that, because the men I grew up under did the best they could with what they knew, just like other preachers that are out there. I'm not trying to be in conflict with anybody. But I can remember when I would go to church and think, well, I'm saved, and then about the time I thought I was saved, they would invent a new sin, and they preached stuff that wasn't even in the Bible, man. I mean, they preached against everything you could imagine. And they named sin to the point was every week you felt like, well, I'm lost again, and I need to go to the altar and get saved, because we measured success by how many times we got people in an altar. And sometimes that's not successful at all, because what that tells me is these same people do not believe into righteousness yet. Sometimes the most successful thing that can happen is nobody get out of their chair and go forward and say, listen, you can't talk me out of my salvation. Now that doesn't mean I don't believe in altar calls or believe that people can respond to the gospel in that way, but I think when you constantly are preaching legalism to the point where people feel disqualified, what happened to me as a young man is I thought, you know what? I love this God, but He doesn't, evidently He doesn't love me, and I can't live it. And I hear people say that to me all the time. I, brother, I'd come to church, but I can't live it. I said, welcome to the club. Somebody also said, well, you guys are preaching grace because there's sin in your life. I said, you better believe it. From the pulpit to the door, we, we need the grace of God. Not because I'm trying to cover anything up, but because I don't care who you are. If it's not for the grace of God, I, 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 ain't nobody going to make it. But what that did to me as a young man is I thought, you know what? I'm going to try my best to get on this religious treadmill of do, 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 because I don't understand it's done, done, done to the point where I, I thought, I, if, I, if I'm going to die and go to hell anyway, and I was a young man at the time, I thought I'm probably going to die and go to hell. I could see myself taking the nasty plunge in the lake of fire, man. And I thought, you know what? If I'm going to die and go to hell, at least I'm going to enjoy the ride. And what I did was I walked away from what I thought was God, but really what I was doing was walking away from religious performance because I ran right smack dab into God at some point. Thank God that I heard the gospel, because it brought me back around to realize I was accepted in the beloved, and that the salvation that I now enjoy is not on the basis of me. It's on the basis of Him doing the saving. And He saved me, and He is continuing to save me. And salvation is an ongoing complete and total deliverance so that we can be restored back to the glorified state of the life that God has determined for us. But he says, all have sinned, Romans 3, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Nobody made it to this glorious life that God had intended for us to live. But the latter part of the book of Romans is God revealing what it takes and what He's done to be able to help us to live this glorious life where the glory of God can be manifested in the earth and we can be expressions of God Himself in the earth, just like God created Adam in His image and in His likeness, 
with dominion as high as a bird can fly and as deep as a fish can swim. And so, you know, as you start to realize what all that is about, then you start to realize that there is a shift between what I do and entering into what God has done. And that begins to be such a powerful shift. And then you start to realize that He added this ingredient where it used to be based on the law. Now He gives us the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is so full of life. Because what He does is He just doesn't give us this uh, new covenant with a bunch of rules. He gives us a life. See, the gospel's not about a law you have to keep. It's about receiving a life that'll keep you. So once again, the problem is not cheap grace, it's cheap law. It's when you think you can keep the rules and be qualified on the basis of what you've done. And Jesus Himself, and I want to say this as well, because a lot of times people come back, well, Jesus taught this. What we don't real, what a lot, a lot of people don't realize is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus is still made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law. So He's still teaching in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus is teaching the law in some forms better than anybody else because He not only tells them it's wrong to commit adultery, He says, if, if, if you look on a woman to lust after you, you've already committed adultery. So He ups the ante. Then He says, if you, uh, you know, the law says don't kill, but I say if you hate your brother, you're a killer. So He moves it from the realm and the dimension of just the act into the thought and intent of the heart because the real gospel goes after the heart. It can only deal with the heart. And then he ups the ante even further in Matthew 5, the very last verse. He said, there's nothing acceptable less than, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. I mean, that puts the nail in the proverbial coffin that says, hey, if you want access on the basis of the law, then what you're going to find out is you've got to have nothing less than perfection. Not do your best, not try harder, but be perfect even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. And if you know that yourself, nobody has ever made that level of perfection based on their performance. But Paul writes later in Romans, but he also writes in Hebrews, and he tells them, he says that, that, that Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus, that the Bible said He has sanctified by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. He has sanctified us through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. So the sanctification was through, not on the basis of what I've done, but I'm sanctified on the basis of an offering. The offering of Jesus Christ was what sanctified me, and He sanctifies through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Watch this, once and for all. And then He goes on to say, and the next verse or two below that, He has perfected forever. Perfected perfected forever them that are sanctified. Well, if you were sanctified on the basis of an offering, then you were perfected on the basis of an offering. So your acceptance to God is on the basis of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ that says He's perfected forever them that are sanctified. That's not my words. That's Hebrews chapter number 9 and 10. And that's about as clear as you can get it. So that the, the, the demand that Matthew 5, the last verse said, be ye therefore perfect, is not achieved on the basis of your performance, but it is achieved on the basis of receiving the sacrifice 
that was the ultimate sacrifice for every sin committed. Because under the old covenant, the blood of these bulls and goats could only cover sin. But in the new covenant, Jesus came not just to make God happy. He came to bear the sin of the world, and He came to become death to sin. He died to sin once that He might deliver us from the bondage of sin. Not just the bondage of the law, but the bondage of sin. So uh, in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is this incredible declaration of the gospel that Paul said. It is the power of God to salvation. We'll, we'll get into some much, many more details. Let me just kind of uh, talk a little bit about the, the, the latter part of uh, Hebrews. Uh, let, me, let me go to uh, uh, th- this part of it. It says, in Romans uh, number 7, there's a divorce from the old man and the old covenant and the relationship with Christ as our husband that ignites the work of the Holy Spirit who indwells in and empowers us. Every believer, uh, empowers every believer. Romans 7 is Paul's roller coaster ride of wanting to do good, but evil was present. It is not the plight of the Christian journey, though, however. It is what a man is like when he's under the law. But then Paul begins to tell us that since we're married to another, and since we have been redeemed from the curse of the law, that there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, and we are brought into this glorious liberty. Uh, Chapters 9 through 11 is the vindication of God's righteousness. It appears that God has rejected His people Israel, but it is Israel who has rejected her Messiah. God's rejection of Israel is only partial. There is a spiritual remnant that has trusted in Christ. Uh, Hence, that there was a a remnant of first fruits that you see in Revelation chapter 7 and chapter 14 that are brought in. This is, I believe, the remnant of Revelation 17, the 144,000 were the first fruits. But when he finishes in Romans 11, he talks about the vine and the true vine. In this book, I have a whole chapter called The Great I Am where he's saying, uh, You thought Israel was the vine, Israel's not the vine. Jesus said, I am the vine. I'm the true vine. You're the branches. So in Romans 11, he starts talking about how the natural branches and the wild branches are connected to the same root and to the same vine, and as a result, create this new Israel of God that is not a replacement of the old. It is the inclusion of the old brought into the true Israel of God, which is Jesus Christ. Israel is my firstborn, he said in Exodus, and out of Egypt have I called my son. He talked about the nation of Israel. But when Jesus was fleeing from Herod, he goes down into Egypt and he quotes the scripture. He says, so that the scripture might be fulfilled, Israel is my firstborn, and out of Egypt have I called my son. And so Jesus is the true Israel of God. So I don't care if you're Jew, Gentile, you must be born again. And then, of course, 12 through 16 is the application of the righteousness of God. It talks about how we need to stop assuming an outward expression that does not come from within us, but to be transformed and not conformed. Well, we're out of time. Uh, we will pick up back in here again. We'll start unpacking this again in the Scripture next week. If you'd like to support this ministry and sow a seed into the ministry, uh, all you have to do is either scan that code on the screen. It'll take you directly to a link where you can give via credit card or PayPal, or you can use the website, and there's a place where you can give, and that's the easiest way to do it. You can also set up a monthly debit if you'd like to become a monthly partner, or you can give a one-time gift. You can also set a check or money order to the address on the screen, or you can call the number on the screen, and someone will take your call. God bless you. Join us next week again. 
I am excited to announce the release of my latest book titled The Great I Am. In this book, we will explore the seven times in the Gospel of John that Jesus says, I am. When he uses that phrase, it is always in contrast to something from the Old Covenant. For instance, they thought Moses and the law was the door into the sheepfold, but Jesus said to them, I am the door. They thought that Israel was the true vine, but Jesus said to them, I am the vine, you are the branches. As you read the pages of this book, you will discover that Jesus removed the covenant of death and replaced it with the covenant of life. Get your copy of the book, The Great I Am, today.